Hello, I'm Anna Walker, and you're listening to the Reader's Digest podcast, in which we navigate the woes and the wonders of modern life, with leading experts on the tools that you need to survive and thrive in a modern world. In today's show, Eva Makovic offers a beginner's guide to opera with Alexandra Coglin, a classical music journalist and opera content consultant at Glindbourne. Thank you so much for joining us, Alexandra. It's Thank great to have me. you on the show. Um, so perhaps you could just start by telling me what opera is in general. I think in some ways it's easier to start with what opera isn't. It's not difficult. It's not complicated. It's just storytelling through music at the most basic level. Um, however, when you see opera at its grandest, at its, its sort of best, you sort of you're adding layers on top of that. So it's an art form that involves every art form. It's not just people singing. You've got a whole maybe a hundred piece orchestra, so people playing so many different instruments. You've got lighting design. You've got choreography, dance, movement. You've got acting. Increasingly today, you've got video projection. You've got all kinds of you know special effects going on so it's sort of I suppose I would describe it as the biggest sort of total art form you can imagine Mm -hmm. so with that multitude of um, elements that you just mentioned I imagine it might be a little bit you know difficult to keep up what sort of a first time viewers should pay attention to and look out for I think it all comes down to emotion it is about storytelling and I think I'm worried with the programs you get when you go to the opera that people sit down very diligently and they think I should read through the story before I go and often you get two sentences in and you're already lost you know opera is famous for having these incredibly complicated plots if I sit down and read them beforehand I I feel slightly sort of giddy you can't keep up and actually if you just trust the art form trust the composer sit down and, and let your eye fall where it will let your sort of emotions happen I think you've got to be very receptive that's the only thing with opera be open to whatever you might feel because I think it might take you by surprise often. Mm-hmm. So is there no homework at all that one should do before coming to an opera? I really don't think there is. I think I worry a lot with lots of articles about how to get into opera because it suggests that it is something you have to prepare for. It's like going on a, a marathon or something. You have to you know, do your training. Um, yes, it helps if you, you listen to things, them, things you like. You work out, OK, I enjoy this composer more than that composer so you can make your choice um, better informed, I suppose, when you go to the opera, you commit to a piece that it's in a style that speaks to you. But beyond that, I think openness, receptiveness, a willingness perhaps to suspend disbelief. You know, this is an art form where we have, um, I was working on opera last week, where a character enters on a flying chariot pulled by two fire-breathing dragons. You know, you have to be sort of open to this world that is slightly larger than life. But that can be a really positive thing. I think we all live these quite um, nose to the grindstone, we pay our mortgages, we you know we get up, we clean our teeth, we have our breakfast. This is a world in which all of that banality is swept away and you're just feeling much more intensely, you're living much more intensely, everything is life or death. It's on the edge and that can be incredibly cathartic, I think, to go and experience. Mm-hmm. Is there a dress code? No. Um, or having said no, certain contexts, yes. So summer opera, for example, I work a bit with Glyndebourne, the opera company that's based in Sussex. And um, while we don't have a dress code, we very much encourage people to think of it as a big day out. It's usually a lovely summer day. You're spending five or six hours in this gorgeous garden. You're having a lovely picnic or a lovely dinner. You sort of dress to have the experience that you want. So people often, the men often wear black tie. The ladies often wear summer dresses or cocktail dresses because it feels part of the experience. But if you turned up in jeans, nobody would be turning you away. And certainly in a London opera company or anywhere 
out in the regions. I mean, you see people in everything from jeans and a t-shirt. I've been to the opera in flip-flops in the summer, you know, really everything. Or at Covent Garden in the winter, you know, when people go to the ballet or the opera, you'll see people in in furs and jewels. So really the whole gamut. Mm-hmm. And uh, from what you've mentioned about opera and its sort of characteristic elements, it sounds a lot like a musical. What makes it different to a musical? So yes, it's incredibly close to a musical, that larger-than-life quality, you know, people who break into song because their words can no longer contain, you know, what they need to express. The difference, I think, are there's several. Um, In musicals, people speak the dialogue, so you have sort of functional exchange of information and then you break into song for moments of emotion. For most operas, you're singing continuously. So I think that's where all the jokes come in about opera, you know, people who are satirising it or mocking it, you know, people saying, do you want a cup of tea in sort of gorgeous melodies. It, It can be a bit like that. But as I say, it's just about amplification, about larger than life qualities. Um, There's also a language question. Most musicals tend to be in English in this country and most opera tends to be in Italian or in French. Obviously, we have a huge tradition of English language opera. And if you go to English National Opera in London, their policy is they translate everything. So you hear it in English. Um, I've been amazed when I work with young students, um, especially at ENO. They're shocked when an opera is in English. They feel like opera should be in Italian and they kind of don't like it. It's very much personal preference. I found that repertoire I found a bit harder to get into. For example, I've always struggled a bit with Wagner because it's very long, these very epic, big structures. I found opera in English sort of translated much more accessible for me, but other people prefer the the authenticity of the original language. There's a colour you get, particularly, I think, from Italian repertoire, which doesn't translate so well into English. German English is a much closer sort of set of vowels. It feels like a much more natural shift. But otherwise, it's very close to music theatre. Sure. And uh, it's interesting that you touched upon uh, the length with Wagner, because that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you. I think some people might be daunted by the sheer length of like, I don't know, sitting through a ring cycle or yeah. something. How, how do you deal on like a practical level with the length and just, you know, sitting through it? I think in the age of the box set, this is becoming less of an issue and Hollywood films are getting longer and longer. I mean, I was looking at The Irishman on Netflix last night. I mean, it's what, four hours long? Yeah. Most operas sit, yeah, somewhere between, you know, two and a half, three hours. So it's not short. But as with everything, when it's good, you don't notice it. I've been to see different productions of the same opera, and sometimes you're checking your watch thinking, goodness, this is going on forever. And other times it just whips past. I think, again, it's about surrender. This is a different pace of life. You know, people have to sing these emotions at each other. It's not as quick as just just speaking. So once you're into the the rhythm, the groove of the thing, I think particularly with Wagner and um, modern opera like Philip Glass, I've been amazed that the Met and ENO have both currently sold out runs of Philip Glass operas, which are traditionally very repetitive and they're quite long. But as with Wagner, it puts you in a sort of meditative state. The passage of time sort of changes. You begin to, um, it's it's like meditation. It's like a yoga class. You feel things differently. And actually, time passes remarkably swiftly. Mm -hmm. Um, Perhaps you could talk us through some different styles of opera. What are they? That's a huge question. Um, I suppose we start off, so opera is born 
I suppose, at the cusp of the 17th century. It starts off in royal courts with the aristocracy, patrons who have enough money to fund opera. Um, So we're starting with Monteverdi, for example. But very quickly, I mean, there's such a small repertoire that belongs to that era. Very quickly, the public are excited by this new art form. They want a piece of the action too. So in Venice, particularly in Italy, public opera houses start to open, which is when opera really becomes itself um all of the same things we want today we want a great night out we want spectacle we want romance we want blood we probably want sex all of that starts to come out in late Monteverdi so operas like the marriage of Popea um the uh, return of Ulisse so that baroque opera gets a bad rep I think for being very long and very complicated but if you choose carefully so Monteverdi certain handle operas um Yes, it's all dressed up in sorceresses and kings and princes and fire-breathing dragons, but the emotions are very, very straightforward. Mm-hmm. I've been working on Alcina at the moment, which is an opera about a woman who has all the power in the world, but she can't get the man she loves to love her back. And actually, for all of her magic and spells, that's what it comes down to, an emotion that we can very much relate to. Mm-hmm. So Baroque opera is larger than life, but um, I think with some very true emotions. We then move into the classical period. <clears throat> so people like Mozart, I suppose, would be your classic example all those great comedies that we know and love the marriage of figaro mm-hmm. cosi fan tutte um that's i suppose it shares a formality with baroque opera there are certain rules that you abide by you have to accept um a structure of song where um it's cyclical so arias are structured aba so i love you my father won't approve i love you um, which some people find quite artificial, but I think lots of directors today are trying to find a way to make that feel more organic. You know, our thoughts don't always progress in a straight line. We do come round on the same thoughts again and again. Um, so those musical structures can, once you've accepted them, I think can work beautifully for the passage of emotion. Then, of course, we arrive in the 19th century with all the big names that we know, Puccini, with Verdi. You know, opera becomes bigger, it becomes grander, it becomes more intense, uh, more romantic in every sense, small R and capital R. And then we arrive in the 20th century where opera sort of fragments into so many different styles. Some composers are looking to the past. Um, You get people like Stravinsky trying to write a Mozart opera for the 20th century. The war is this huge watershed. It's sort of, the world has changed. Nothing will ever be the same again. So everyone responds differently. Some people, as I say, return to the past. Other people like Schoenberg are saying, let's abandon harmony altogether. Let's try and write an opera that's completely divorced from that language. And from that moment onward, really anything goes. If you look at who's composing today and in what styles i mean it's it's everything in the kitchen sink if you if you want it you can find it i think who's the most prominent composer these days a modern one modern composer Mm -hmm. oh i think i have to answer this probably from an english perspective because we're incredibly lucky at the moment i was thinking before you arrived of yeah contemporary composers the living tradition of opera and so many of them are english or irish so we've got george benjamin whose opera written on skin i think is as close to a blockbuster as modern opera has given us it's a work that really has found its place in the repertoire it's been staged i think you know we're talking 20 or so times all over the world in the last um a few years which is interesting because it's an ancient story it's quite a simple story about a woman who's married to a very Um, dominating man who finds romance and freedom in somebody else but the I suppose what's appealed so much to people is 
the organic way in which music is used to tell the story. You don't need to know any of the rules about opera. You don't need to have an understanding of the various periods or conventions or rules. You watch it and you feel overwhelmed, I think, by that tale of domestic abuse and finding emotional freedom elsewhere. So George Benjamin would be the one I would lead people to instinctively first. If you like comedy, I think it's very easy with opera to talk only about grand tragedies, big emotions, you know, huge canvases. But opera does comedy really well. And the modern Irish composer Gerald Barry has done a brilliant adaptation of The Importance of Being Earnest. I mean, you'd think that would be impossible to turn into an opera because it's a play, it's about speed, about lightness, intimacy, you know, quick, fast-paced exchanges of, of dialogue. Somehow he's found a musical language to make that work. It's incredibly funny in a way, in a different way to the play. It's very surreal. There are moments with loudspeakers. There's an aria in which the lady she smashes. I think it's 40 dinner plates throughout the course of it. It's like nothing else you've ever seen. I think it's a great start to someone's opera journey. Sounds great. Um, Are there a lot of women in opera? Are there any operas written by uh, female composers? Fewer. Um, I think opera, because it's such an expensive genre is lagging behind um, perhaps concert hall music in terms of commissioning female composers. Um, We do have a couple. Um, Kaya Sariaho, who is a Finnish composer who's based in Paris, is probably our sort of greatest um, living opera composer as a woman. Her L'Amour de Loin is this sort of glinting, gleaming, um, beautiful. Again, it's a, I think it's based in a Renaissance story, a sort of courtly love tale, but it's, it's, as a musical canvas it's incredibly rich and beautiful and actually just this week it's a good opportunity that you're asking me this question um the vienna state opera yesterday um staged its first ever opera by a woman olga neuvert's um adaptation of orlando the virginia wolf story so an incredibly female story with a female composer in this you know traditionally very male bastion we are starting to break down those walls but i would be lying if i'd say that we're at a parity with men at this point mm-hmm. But at least it's starting to change now. Definitely. And America, I think, is leading that a lot. We had um, Missy Mazzoli's opera, Breaking the Waves, the adaptation of the Lars von Trier film in, at the Edinburgh Festival this year. And she's one of you know, a, a generous handful of American women who are sort of breaking into those big institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and going back to the styles of opera that you talked us through, so Baroque and classical um, Where would you recommend starting for somebody who's new to it? So I thought about this question before you arrived, and I've got I've got five potential suggestions. If that doesn't sound like too much, because <laughs> sorry, it depends why you're going to opera. So my first suggestion would be people who are going for great tunes, big music. The people who love, you know, they've turned on the radio, they've maybe heard Puccini and Verdi, and they just want to be swept away on these sort of great gestures. Um, my suggestion would be Tchaikovsky, Eugene Onegin. People who maybe have heard his piano concertos or his ballet music, you know what a great tune writer he is. This is an adaptation of Pushkin. It's it's a very simple story. A young girl who's very sheltered meets a man from outside her world, falls madly in love with him. She stays up all night writing him a letter declaring her feelings and is then rejected. 
he's much older I should say so she is ashamed she's embarrassed and later on in life they come back together and I think the 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 power dynamic is slightly changed but the intensity of that first love emotion set to Tchaikovsky's music is is overwhelming and the context of St Petersburg at this point um, he he puts lots of folk music into the score so there are lots of these wonderful colourful choruses and dances just sort of swirling around so the vivid sense of St Petersburg ballrooms in the 19th century is yeah it comes across very vividly from that my second pick would be for people who just like big emotions I think sometimes you just want to lose yourself in somebody else's story yeah so for people who are going to opera for emotional release for catharsis and this is slightly an unusual choice but I think 20th century opera as I say it cuts through all of the rules all of the conventions it's a very direct emotional storytelling act so lots of my friends who have come to the opera for the first time I take them to something modern not something traditional because it comes with no baggage so I would recommend um, Francis Poulenc's Dialogue des Carmelites which is based on a true story which I think makes it overwhelming so in 1794 sort of the height of the French Revolution a group of 16 Carmelite nuns were executed by the revolution they were given a choice you can either um give up your habits give up your faith and you know enter a normal civilian life or you can go to the guillotine and they chose death and that told through music becomes this extraordinary and unusual opera it's not a love story it's about a community of women who are working out who they are and this question of well, what would you die for is i think particularly today if we think about suicide bombers we think about you know conviction politics even a very very charged question at the heart of this story we have a young woman who arrives very nervous very unsure she enters the convent as a an escape from the violence of life and actually through the opera she has to confront her demons and really own her decisions and her identity um, the opera ends with this extraordinary scene where all the nuns sing a salve regina as they walk to their deaths so one by one you hear the axe fall and the number of voices shrinks until there's just one voice left i think it's maybe the most devastating scene in all opera if you want that emotional blow i mean you will you'll feel it quite hard here would be if you've got children or if you're coming to the opera as a family i think mozart's the magic flute is is a classic mm-hmm. um it's a really charming sort of surreal fairy tale you've got wicked queens you've got priests you've got princesses you've got a bird catcher who can play his magic bells and birds come out of the sky it's 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 just enchanting and lots and lots of fun asking me earlier what's the difference between opera and musical theatre this was really conceived I would think I would say as musical theatre it was written for a popular audience not for the court and it has spoken dialogue rather than sung recitative so the tunes are simpler they are more contained it feels more like folk music but this is Mozart at the very end of his career the last year of his life so it's simplicity incredibly um, artfully worn this great sophistication in the way he combines all of his elements but lots of lovely tunes and colourful characters Mm -hmm. my next one um, my pick for people who love 
storytelling immediacy. Um, I've mentioned that I'm hugely passionate about opera in English because I think if if you're a native speaker, obviously it cuts through one level of um, distance, I suppose, from opera. Benjamin Britten's Peter Grimes is a story about an outsider, about a very small community in Suffolk um, where everyone knows everyone else's business. It's all about gossip. See, it's an opera about a very closed community. Everybody knows everyone else's business. They're always gossiping and talking about each other. And at the heart of it, we have this man, Peter Grimes, who doesn't fit in. He tries his best to do the right thing, and yet whatever he touches, it sort of, it turns, it turns bad. And the, the detail with which Britain paints the psychology of this man, because we, we don't know if we like him or not, he's very childlike he's very innocent and yet he's got this violence to him two boys die in the course of the opera as a direct result of his actions and that complexity of of the relationship between us and him I think for me is something that keeps me coming back again and again Britain paints the sea, the environment, the, the violence of these waves striking the shore, the kind of the glittering, glistening Sunday morning sunshine on the sea. I mean, it's, it's enchanting. I love that. Mm-hmm. My last pick would be um, comedy again. I think opera is dominated sort of unfairly by tragedy. If you ask anyone, name me one opera, they will say La Boheme or they'll say Tosca. Um, Verdi, after a whole career of writing these passionate dramas and tragedies full of death and disaster, in he's 80 at this point, um, in the last decade of his life, he writes Falstaff, which is an adaptation of Shakespeare's The Merry Wives of Windsor. And he uses a whole career's experience to tell the lightest and the frothiest of tales. I mean, it's about a vain old man who believes that all the women in his community are in love with him. It's silly, it's lighthearted, and you have this wonderful battle of the sexes, these women who are smart and sophisticated and manipulate him, I mean, in every possible way. It's genuinely very funny. I think that's always my my peeve with opera. It's supposed to be funny, but if you're laughing because you know you ought to rather than because you feel it, then I think the director has failed. This is genuinely very, very entertaining musical writing. So there's something for everyone in opera. There really is. And we've got, what, 400 years of repertoire and it's growing every day. So, I mean, there really is something for whatever mood you happen to find yourself in. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of people still have this notion that it's a very elitist art form and are maybe put off by that. What's, What's your take on that? If elite means it's an art form where only the good survives, then I would say yes. Opera is very expensive. It's like a Hollywood film. So it goes through so many layers of you know an organization has to commission a work they then maybe workshop it before it makes its way to the stage in terms of historical works we've had 200 years for them to sink or swim and those that have survived have survived for a reason there's a very um a thorough i suppose system that goes on of uh, triage over hundreds of years but elite in terms of audience 
absolutely not. There's nothing closed about classical music. And you have so many ways in. If you don't want to have the whole velvet seat grand opera house experience nowadays, what I love is that you can find opera almost anywhere. I live in London. And actually just down the road in my local church, we have Fulham Opera, who put on Wagner operas in a church. They've done a complete ring cycle. That's five minutes from my house. The the vicar's pug played the role of the dragon. He had little horns on. You know, <laughs> this is amazing. This is opera at such a different <laughs> level. And above pubs, we have warehouses. And not just in London, um, someone like Birmingham Opera Company put on uh, Shostakovich's Lady Macbeth of Mitsensk last year in an old nightclub. Um, the audience walked through the action. It was very close. I I mean, it's won awards because it was this very visceral, very intense, um, very unfussy, you know, version of opera. Um, you've also got opera on television. I think we forget how many operas were originally commissioned. People like Britain. Um, it's Christmas time, so Minotti's Amal and the Night Visitors, a beautiful opera about the, the Three Kings, um, was written for television. So there's a way of sitting at home on your sofa in your pyjamas, enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Um, and would you say it's safer to start with going to see an actual live performance or maybe getting a DVD perhaps and watching it at home first? I feel really strongly about live performance. I think today so much of what we consume artistically is mediated. It's digitally filtered. You know, if we're listening to Spotify, these tracks have been compressed. They've been fiddled with by engineers. If we're watching YouTube, similarly, you go to a pop concert and people are watching through their phones even if they're performing live in a pop concert often the music is going through a sound desk so again you've got a producer you've got an engineer changing what you're hearing mm. the brilliant thing for me about opera is it's naked art it's the person's voice going straight to your ear there's nothing in between the two and there's an exhilaration to that there's an intimacy to that but there's also an extreme sport element there's a risk this could all go horribly wrong every night it's going to be different the same reason that we watch olympic athletes or mountain climbers and we hold our breath that's what's going on in the opera and there's also a sense of ritual You know, how often, you know, we live in a secular society now. There are very few publicly shared experiences that we have now that we don't go to church. But in that moment in the opera house, whether it's 200 people or 2,000 in a big arena, you are all the only people who will ever hear this performance at that moment. You all feel the same thing. And the ripple of energy that goes through that, the greatest opera DVD can't capture that. Yeah. The stakes are just so high. They really are. Yeah. Because there's no microphones, there's no help. These are athletes throwing their voice out, you know, to thousands of people. It's people operating at the physical limits. And I think that changes us emotionally as well when somebody is giving everything and using, I mean, the sweat you see pouring off people at the end of an opera, the degree of physical exhaustion, they've given their whole selves to you for three hours. Um, that changes you, I think, in the moment of watching. Mm -hmm. What's your personal journey with opera? When did it start and what was your first opera? That's a really good question. My parents enjoyed opera and it was always available around the house as a child. I think they are of their generation in that they have a lot of CDs, they had a lot of records, but going to live opera was something very special that would happen less often. Um, I was quite lucky in that they 
a horrible word, curated my first opera experience really carefully. So my first opera, I must have been 13 or 14. We'd gone to visit family friends in Vienna, one of whom had a regular sort of a seat in a box at the opera. So she managed to get us in. So we were right up close to the stage on the side. So maybe I could see half of the stage. I was standing up, you know, peering desperately around the edge. It was uh, The Marriage of Figaro, so classic Mozart comedy. And I think what struck me wasn't so much even the performance, although I loved looking into the pit and seeing the way the musicians were interacting with the conductor, that sort of whole um, level of communication, of interaction, of energy going on to create the, the illusion on stage. But what excited me is that in Vienna, it's a local company. So you have a group of singers who appear maybe eight times in a season in different roles. And you could feel that the audience knew who they liked. They were here, they were rooting for certain people that someone was singing apart for the first time that night. And there was a real sense of like watching a sports team. You know, it was your local team that they were rooting for. At the end, people were cheering, they were throwing flowers. And I think that sense of ownership, of knowing the work really well of knowing the singers really well and being part of the performance that was what I think really excited me mm. and something I was really curious about um, as a music journalist and opera critic you see loads of operas like on a regular basis is there an element that you're really fed up with when you go to an opera and you see something and go like oh not this again I had a, a flatmate for a while um, who refused to come to opera with me after a, a little bit. You know, I have lots of spare tickets. I'm always saying, come to the opera with me. And she said, they will, it, it's always Nazis or orgies or both. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I sort of thought about it and she's not wrong. I think maybe we're chasing shock impact too much. You know, what are the taboos? And we want to portray those on stage. I think opera has this reputation for treating women very badly you know the female heroines are packaged up beautifully in order to die in front of us and that's written into the scores and obviously we've got to find a way to treat that in a way that's appropriate to us today if we want to keep the music um, in the repertoire but I think sometimes directors go out of their way to yes to, to seek shock factor to sort of push the boundaries for the sake of it I think I would like to see more female-led opera women who are telling women's stories on the stage rather than men dressing up um, abuse and uh, misogyny in a shiny new package yeah yeah so having said that um, do you prefer a classic setting to a modern one I prefer a setting that seems to emerge organically from the story, from the music. I'll give you an example. On um, Christmas Day this year, so I work with Glyndebourne, the opera company. Um, BBC Four is going to be broadcasting our new production of The Magic Flute, which we premiered in the summer at Glyndebourne. Now, there's nothing traditional about that setting, but what I love is that it gets to the heart of the piece, the essence, the spirit, the, the um, emotion of it is all there. Barbie Doucet, this wonderful French and French-Canadian director-design duo, um, have taken us out of Mozart's sort of abstract fantasy world and put us in a very specific time and place. We're in Vienna at the turn of the century in the Zacher Hotel. Um, the Zacher Hotel was famously taken over by Anna Zacher, the wife of the founder after her husband died. She was this powerful woman at a time when no women had, particularly in business sort of context, that kind of authority. So the Queen of the Night becomes this um, figure, this female figure running a hotel. Zorastro, the, the wicked, sort of, well, wicked, depends <laughs> in our version, the Queen of the Night, who is traditionally the villain, it becomes more complicated. But here, 
her nemesis, I suppose, Zarastro, is the cook in the kitchen. And what's brilliant about the production is that all of Mozart's magic and invention so at some point in the first scene a dragon appears and that all emerges out of the world of the hotel so a pile of blue and white dinner plates becomes a monster pillows become birds that fly through the air the kind of visual wit and playfulness um is it's sort of electrifying you kind of you keep gasping because these wonderful stage pictures keep sort of becoming more and more um elaborate more and more intense it's really sweet and charming and funny and if I had a child I would definitely sit them down to watch that Mm. and a bit of a niche one um do you have a favorite underperformed opera oh I love this question um Handel Opera is having a real renaissance. I love that opera companies in the last, I mean, even within 10 years, 20 years, are really starting to to cotton on to the fact that these operas have a lot to say to us today, despite the fact they come with quite a lot of, you've already mentioned the length, they're quite long, they have complicated plots, they feel quite alien to us in terms of the time period. Um, Alcina, of all of Handel's operas, this story about this this bad girl um, appeals to me enormously, and I think it's not done enough because we get distracted by the magic and the you know she lives in an enchanted island where all of the the birds and the streams and the trees are actually her former lovers. Once she gets bored of them, she turns them into to trees. Mm-hmm. And I think we look at it and think, oh, that's you know it's a silly fantasy story. It's for children. But the idea of a woman breaking the rules, trying to have authority and love at the same time, feels incredibly modern. And I think we haven't really begun to mine the, the truthfulness of that, the relevance of that. And relevance is a is a bit of a dirty word. It's not my measure for great art. But I think as a piece of historical art, it speaks very freshly to us today. And I'd like to see more directors getting to grips with that. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for talking to us, Alexandra. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. BBC4 and BBC iPlayer will be broadcasting Glyndebourne Festival's 2019 production of The Magic Flute on Christmas Day. You should also check out the program for the 2020 Glyndebourne Festival, which will take place between May 21st and August 30th. For tickets, which will go on sale on March 8th, visit glyndebourne.com. Please rate and review our podcast if you enjoy what we do and tell us about your experience with opera on Facebook or tweet us at Reader's Digest UK. For more stories about health, food and culture, subscribe to our newsletter at readersdigest.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening and until next time.